Hello Tabletop Wargamers, and welcome to Tried and True, a podcast hosted by the Delaware War Machine community. Join us as we dive deep into topics around our favorite games, exploring methods and techniques proven to enhance anyone's gaming experience. Hello everybody, and welcome to the ninth episode of Tried and True. I am your host, Paul. Not America. If you've been paying attention or keeping up with us, you're probably wondering, wait a second, should have been Andy and Dan and even Grant on this episode. So we tried to go in and get a um, last minute schedule set up. It just didn't work. And we're just trying to hit it later on down, down the line. But we're going to go and finish up the uh, the series on how to host your first large event. Grant's really excited to go talk about Liberty Brawl, and Erica has done above and beyond for the Susquehanna Scuffle. It's already done now at this point, right? Yeah, um, so we have our venue lined up. Uh, all the tickets sold within 24 hours. So um, I actually talked with Sam. Shout out to the the Maryland fam. Um, we were able to get, I think, two extra teams, six extra players. But yeah, we got some cool prizes lined up. Shout out to Privateer Press. They hooked us up with some really cool uh, swag for the uh, for the event. Yeah, I'm super excited. Can't wait to can't wait to run it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to just seeing it. And it's going to be a lot of our first team events for fun for new players and ones that have never done it before. So we're just excited to do something so local for them. We also want to take an opportunity, though, and just kind of you know uh, give a shout out to More Than Dice, Gonzo over there. He ended up uh, giving us uh, another platform to go ahead and share the good news and share our podcast with everybody. So just a big shout out to him to help us out. Yeah, thank you, Gonzo. If you're really happy with what you're listening to, please find us on YouTube and give us a like and a subscribe. When you end up doing that, it ends up helping us out. It uh, makes it more easier for other people to find our content. You'll be able to see loads of battle reports, lots of fun stuff out there. It's great. Yeah, the other thing, too, is um, if, if you're on one of our social media platforms, uh, any kind of feedback, it just helps us improve the quality of the project that we're doing here. And if there's anything additional, um, let's say, like hobby videos on how to make terrain or paint models or even some lore videos, we're open to that as well. Just Just let us know. We love making content for this game. And if you want to go ahead and help us out, we do have a Patreon. Erica has done so much in order to get these battle reports happening and... We're just trying to, to recover some of the costs with that. And, you know, if you support us on Patreon, you get to go and see some pretty cool artwork. You get to go see the battle reports and the podcast early. Uh, it's definitely worth it. I mean, it, it's it, a buck a month, like, gets you, like, so many options. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? But what I wanted to do is, well, we're probably, like, saying, like, well, what, why is it that we're not, why we're not doing the hosting your large event? Well, a really awesome opportunity presented itself back in May. Well, when Gonzo and I were talking, he said, like, hey, are you interested in maybe seeing if you can go talk to some people at Private Press and see what's going on? So since, like, the middle of May, I've been emailing back and forth, and we got this really awesome opportunity to, you know, interview one of the uh, employees. And then I said, like, hey, you know, we normally do... We normally end up doing large series. Are we able to open up to maybe three or four employees? So on this series, we're actually doing a deep dive into what's going on in Privateer Press this summer. And it is a super, super exciting time. And we just couldn't pass up the opportunity with this. Uh, we're also really happy to be able to share, uh, not just having Privateer Press come come on the show. So thank you. Thank you so much for uh, spending your time here with us. But also we fielded questions from not just the podcast group, but our community as well. 
So it was such an exciting time just to get everybody together and um, be able to come up with these lists of questions and just what's on people's minds. Yeah. And just like the build interest, build enthusiasm, excitement for everything that's coming down the line. You know, we, we, we said that we weren't a current events, but we, we can't pass up the current events. So we'll go and share everything that's going on that we're able to share. And I want to go talk about these professions in general. Like, what is it like to be a 3D modeler? What is it like to be a organized play manager? What is it like to be an RPG development manager? And speaking of RPG development, we actually have our first guest on from Private Pure Press, and that's going to be Matt Getz. Matt, go ahead and say hello and introduce yourself. Hey, welcome to Tried and True. Hello. Thank you for having me. Can can I just take a moment to say that you guys have like impeccable? <laughs> Thank you so much. We try, man. We don't we don't know what we're doing, but uh, <laughs> we're trying our best. We just we claim one hundred percent ignorance and one hundred percent enthusiasm. Nice. So, uh, Matt, your your role is RPG development manager at Privateer Press. But what exactly is that job like? What are you in charge of doing? Uh, basically, I'm in charge of kind of shepherding all of the role-playing game products that you see from concept to conclusion. That involves doing writing and development myself, coordinating with a team of freelancers, uh, coordinating with our editors, both internal and external, fielding feedback from playtesters, helping to, to the level of like helping pick which illustrations are going to be matched up with particular paragraphs from our library of art. It, it's really a lot of different hats that are in service of making sure an RPG gets made. That's really like exciting because I, I think about all the different RPGs out there. I, I love Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Numenera, Cyberpunk. There's so many ones that are out there. And it's amazing. Just even you saying about like, well, where does the art go? These are things that I wouldn't even think about. I just look at my book. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And I'm just excited to play. But I, I really think it's very easy for us to just kind of forget the amount of work that goes into like projects like this. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because before you get into it and start doing it, you like, I didn't have an appreciation earlier on about just how many different roles are necessary for any one of these products to even something as small as like uh, one of those DLC PDFs that we release that still requires a number of people to put their hands on it and put their eyes on it before it can be released to the general public. So saw scroll on my social media today that uh, you guys had a Kickstarter that seemed to knock it out of the park today. I mean, it just launched. I know. And it was like, I saw it on what Discord, Facebook, like all my all my War Machine Discords were just on fire about this, uh, this Kickstarter. So congratulations. Thank you. This one's really exciting for us. Crix is one of the initial four factions for War Machine. It's this very different place. So being able to go into this, you know, archipelago of pirates and like displaced Mulgar from the mainland and zombies and ghosts and everything and just like put them all in one big basket. It's been a lot of fun. That uh, that that shark that you guys have that 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 art's badass. That yeah. thing's really cool. Yeah. No, I was gonna say, is this like the first time that Crix has really been explored at all? Because I I, I don't remember there ever being, I what like the lore. It was like, what is the the big Ogren guy Slaughterborn? What? Uh, oh, uh, Gerlach Slaughterborn is one of the Blood Gorgers. He's uh, the general of the Slaughter Fleet and just a big old blighted trollkin. And he has like the most bad ever i love it <laughs> but yeah. but i remember like i remember he had like a, a story i think in excursions and i guess it would just maybe be the crick's like 
codex or whatever the 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 the, the battle book that we used to have. Um, is this the first time that Crix has really been explored in the Iron Kingdoms? Well, uh, sort of. There was a lot of content on Crix in the old uh, D twenty days in the world guide, but there wasn't a lot of opportunity to play as them, like to to play as Shard Islanders or Satixis or Blighted Ogren. Um, you could sort of make it work with the Monster Nomicon, uh back in the D20 version. They had, like, if you want to play as this race or that race, and there were a lot of, like, level adjustments you had to do. It wasn't as simple as just, you know, creating a, a new Satixis character. You had more math than normal that you had to worry about. Sorry, I was going to say, you saying about the level adjustment? I forgot about that. That was such a pain in the butt if you wanted to go play, like, anything. I remember, like, like playing, like, yeah. the, the, the bug people. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the well, Thrycreen? Thrycreen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it also didn't get a lot of love in the second edition of the RPG. We released the Satixis as a race, but that was basically it. So I guess you could say this is the first time we've really had a focused effort on representing Cricks and the Shard Islands in the RPG. Yeah, I'm just really excited by that because it's just... I, again, I, I come from an area of ignorance just because I, I don't know much a lot about the lore. I don't know much about the fluff. I, I don't remember the names of some of these, you know, the characters, right? But I, I'm just excited to see that the, this world can now be explored and just, you know, what's what's there to go and take a look at, you know, adventures to go and have your modules or, you know, campaigns that are going to be in there because it's just... It's stuff that we never knew, or at least I can say I never knew that it was actually there to begin with. So I just think, yeah, choosing the Shard Isles is just such a neat, uh, a neat setting. Well, I just, I think it's really yeah. cool, just Crix in general, because it's always been kind of this mysterious part of the Iron Kingdom's lore. I think, uh, so I picked up the core rule book for the D6 system that came out, what, about 10, 10 years ago? And the free, um, like, short campaign one-off that came with that, I think the end of it was, like, the box that your party stole. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was Fool's Rush In, the, the first adventure that was released for the 2D6 system. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's how that ended. And it was like a Crix Cortex in the in the box. And I remember um, playing that and thinking that was that was so cool, because it's, it's been such a mysterious thing. Yeah, one of the things that we wanted to do was shed like the right amount of light on the Shard Islands and Crix in this. As an example, what I mean by that, the Isle of Satix, where the Satix has come from, it's always been described in setting as like this mysterious location, and nobody knows where it is. And it's like, well, if you're going to be playing Satix's characters, obviously they know where it is. Does that mean we need to find an island on the map and pin it down and say, here be Satix? <laughs> um, we, we chose not to do that, because even if the player characters Satixis are aware of their origin, it's still a big secret for them, right? So not something that we wanted to just like baldly and nakedly put on the map for all to know and pin ourselves into a corner for all time. I think it's actually a smart decision to do that because you're kind of saying it as in like, hey, the world, we don't have this information right here, but if your GM, DM wants to go ahead and do this, like they can probably create something of their own out of that. So, and that's something I've always liked about the 5E system or just campaign writing in general is that you, you can typically like take the resources and then, you know, build something a little bit different or unique to you from it. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I was just gonna say just to kind of piggyback off of what Paul just said. I th I think it kind of leaving it open ended like that's cool too because you get a lot of theory crafting with communities and online, mm -hmm. and that just helps with discussion. 
Yeah, and just to build up hype. And that's one of the strengths of the Shard Islands in particular, in my mind. Uh, Because when it comes to the mainland, you know, uh, Kador, Lael, Signar, Ord, everybody knows where everything is in those, basically. like Everything's Kador, they just don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) North Kador, short Kador. Scary Kador. (laughs) But uh, the Shard Islands have for so long been deliberately kind of undefined. You know, we even say that they're thousands and thousands more an uncounted number of islands that are not represented on the map it's sort of like a a tone poem of where the major islands are but like that is one of the absolute strengths of the shard islands as a setting for an rpg it leaves so much room for gm invention and we we tried to lean into that uh one of the books has stuff for like random island generation tables. So if you need to come up with a, a weird and quirky shard island on the fly, you can just roll some dice. That is so cool. I like that a lot. And that could just like inspire and just inspire someone to make like a whole campaign or a whole story just based on that. Yeah, absolutely. Like preserving the the unwritten areas of the map in the shard islands, like keeping that sacrosanct was something that we knew we wanted to do, right? Like we can talk at length about uh you know, Cullen Rock and Garlgast and Crix itself, but by no means did we want to say this is what every single island out there is and what's on it and who's in charge, because GMs like to invent, you know? We like to tell stories of our own creations. Well, I think that that's actually an awesome segue into the actual interview, because you're talking about GMs writing stories and creating stories. So, Matt, can you tell us a story about how you actually got to your specific position with Private Press right now? How did how did you get here? Sure. So, as with everybody who works in RPGs, it started with my love and fascination for them. You know, back in middle school, I got my hands on some random modules for second edition D anD D, and I didn't have the core rules, so I had to kind of invent what I thought the rules were in order to be able to play these adventures with my friends. And it just started a lifelong passion and love for role-playing games. So much so that the the way that I got into the industry was by writing a role-playing game. When I was in college, I you know, had my trusty game group, and we'd been playing the same homebrew material for God, decades at that point, and decided to just put it together as a little indie publication. And I was fortunate enough to be going to a school that had a game design instructor who also worked at Wizards of the Coast. Oh, wow. That lucky. Yeah, stars aligned. Yeah, incredible. Incredible fortune there. And I explained to him, like, hey, man, this is what I, what you do is what I want to be doing. And to show him the degree of commitment that I had for this, I just brought in a physical copy of the RPG that we had made. And I was like, this is me and my friends with no budget, just the investment of our time, and showed it to him. And shortly thereafter, I was given my first freelance writing job on 4th edition D&D. That's awesome. You know, I got to do some freelance writing for a monster manual and a setting guide and some stuff for the online versions of Dungeon & Dragon magazine. And once I got my foot in the door there, started going to Chen Con to meet and greet with other people, other freelancers, um, other companies. That's how I wound up meeting Aaron Rudell, who was also writing for fourth edition at that time. And yeah, it was just kind of a the, the luck of happenstance meetings that allowed me to get my foot in the door in the industry and then 
just shoving the door wide open afterward. So when you're meeting with other, um, you know, writers and authors and creators, GMs in the community, do you find it's um, like, like it's pretty open sharing is like, is it, is it pretty uh, like inclusive where people are open to sharing ideas or do people kind of keep them close to the chest? It, it kind of depends on the person, I'd say. Most of the people that I know and interact with in the industry are very open to talking about what they're working on and giving critique and feedback. And like, it's it's a pretty small sure, world, sure. right? Um, and most of us are in this industry because we're passionate about it. So getting getting to talk shop with other people is just like one of the the greatest benefits of working in the industry. So then, did you what did you have experience with Vibe before getting into Iron Kingdom's Requiem? Yeah, um I've man, I've worked for as a freelancer, I've worked on a number of different systems. Um I've done work for Pathfinder 1st edition, a little tiny bit for Pathfinder 2nd edition. I've written uh adventures for 5e for different companies, some that were released and some that unfortunately were not. Um, obviously the 2D6, I've done work with Modiphius and the 2D20 system and Fallout Wasteland Warfare. Like I'm all over the place. Where do you get inspiration for coming up with adventures? Do you go back to a favorite book? Do you have a favorite fiction story? Uh, I have a, or even a series. I have a number of them, but when it comes to getting inspiration, it comes from anywhere, right? Like I love movies. I love history that history has often been inspirational for uh, scenarios or full adventures. Um, an avid reader. I love horror novels in particular, but I, I didn't used to read a lot of fantasy until I found authors that really clicked with me. People like uh, Scott Lynch and the Gentleman Bastards series or Joe Abercrombie's books, uh, the First Law Trilogy. And the oh, that's interesting. I would have I would have guessed that fantasy would, would have been your favorite genre, but that, that's fascinating. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, like there are good fantasy mm. books, don't get me wrong, but I, I don't know, like alt history and horror tend to be up near the top that's your jam. for me. It's, uh, when it comes to horror, are you talking yeah. about like suspense horror or like the Thrasher horror? I'm assuming suspense. Um, often suspense and like supernatural kind of uh, cosmic horror stories. Like, like Lovecraftian kind of stuff? Lovecraft, but like less problematic authors usually. Um, there, there have been some really interesting modern cosmic horror tales like uh, The Ballad of Black Tom and Lovecraft Country and... Uh, the croning, like all of those are really fascinating because they use the the tools that Lovecraft used, but they don't, they tend not to other marginalized groups, which I appreciate. Gotcha. When it comes to creating these adventures, though, is there like a specific template that you go about? And I always kind of go back to like Dan Harmon, who talks about the hero's journey and uses for like all the Rick and Morty episodes, right? Yeah, the story circle. Yeah, is there something that you use that's similar to that, or is there one that like RPG adventure writers use that's similar to that? Uh, I mean, there there are a number of different templates that people use. Um, there's like the what was it the three room adventure uh, that Alexandrian talked about, or the five by five adventure. Uh, typically, I just kind of don't do that. <laughs> um, I'll I'll have a loose structure in mind of what the shape of the adventure is. And a lot of what comes out in the wash is a process of discovery. Like I'm not a seat of the pants writer, but I'm not like a heavy outliner either. I, I like the ability to be surprised while I'm writing adventures. 
for for instance, in Shadow of the Seeker, the adventure from the previous Kickstarter, there was a, a cameo near the end of the story of the Hermit of Hengeld. I had no intention of putting him in there prior to arriving at that moment in the adventure and realizing, like, you know, it would be good for them to to interact with a non-combative Iosin character this time, who's somebody that would be fascinating to include. And that's when I decided it would be the Hermit and then worked the story kind of around that decision as I went through the revision process. Gotcha. And then when it comes to like making these content, you know, the Shadow the Seeker or any content for the Iron Kingdom RPG, do you have free range to create anything or do the powers that be kind of set up boundaries to say like, hey, look, do what you want, but stay within this little confined space. Or they're like, there's no walls. Go wherever you, you want to go and see. It's a mix of those two, honestly. There are some certain like practical considerations that have to go into everything. Like the more we talk about some grand new region or expanse or, you know, dozens and dozens of new monsters in an adventure or a book, like that dramatically increases the art budget, for instance. So there's there's certainly a a balancing act of how free and wild you want to go versus like how much time is it going to take to get this produced and what do we have to worry about uh, from our existing archive, our existing assets versus what is going to have to be invented whole cloth. Uh, but I, I don't feel hemmed in at all by the powers that be when it comes to creation because you know I've worked with them for many years. They know the kinds of things I want to do. We're open channel of communication between us when it comes to planning what the next steps are and where we're going to be going next. But with the powers that be, and I'm only asking this, we primarily focus a lot on War Machine and Horde. When it comes to these, like, these, these areas, it does, does it have to kind of fall in line with what direction they want that main product to go? Uh, and the reason why I say that is, like, I think back to Shadows and Seekers and with what happened to the Iosin, I play Retribution. So, you know, I don't know anything, but I just wonder... What is going to happen to my faction? Is this going to go and influence like what might I see for my faction later on the line? Does that kind of make its way into like, hey, can you kind of present these this ideas to line up for something we're going to release two or three years down the line? Yeah, there, there's definitely some of that, but that also kind of goes both ways, right? For instance, I recently was drafting sort of the uh, the the story beats of where a particular faction would be the direction I wanted to take them in the role-playing game and ran that by everyone else that are working on the more War Machine and Horde side of things to make sure that there are no conflicts between what I want to do and what they want to do and see if there's a happy medium where we can both kind of get what we want. You just want to, I guess, you're looking at having continuity between both systems. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where my question was going back to. It's just because I feel like now that you have all these different products, it's just... Because all like it, it's weird because like between that and Warcaster and Mechanica and, and War Machine Horde, like all these systems kind of play with each other. So it's just I just find that mm-hmm. does that make it easier or harder to like make these decisions? But I think you're just answering that. It's just hey, we have we have a conversation around the table. This is what I want to do. Does this work for everybody? And then you drive on with that. But then what are what about with working with Five E? Have you found like there's been any like benefits or challenges for like designing content within Five E? Because I found that. I, I played a lot of 5e D&D by Wizards of the Coast, and I found that I like the simplicity of it, but at times I found that simplicity, like, if I can't think of something on the fly, I I might not know how, uh, a direction to go and run this. 
or or do you find that 5e is is great and you're just like i love it because it's it's i'm able to do whatever i want with it so when it comes to 5e there are certain things that don't don't 100 reflect the the world of the iron kingdoms i'm thinking about like a lot of how spells work for instance and you know the the spell slots and wizard spell books and stuff like that however fifth edition is an incredibly modular system you you can plug in or remove aspects of it without completely breaking the game which i find fascinating uh it's it's like a lego kit right where you can add on things like the pain of healing rules that we created or giant stompy robots are still <laughs> completely viable within it i i really do admire the the simplicity of fifth edition compared to previous editions of the game uh, I do think that they took it in a direction that was easier for players, but also for developers to to come up with. There are just the occasional areas, uh, little friction points between the setting as we know it and how it's existed in previous editions versus uh, what are like common truths about fifth edition. Yeah, and then um, do you like find? I, I just wanted to even like commend like the way that you end up bringing. War Machine of Hordes into this 5e format. And I always go back to uh, Archantric Bolt because I look at that as a spell on Ocean. I'm like, how you make it work in IK RPG? And sure enough, like, what was it? It's that if it hits a construct, it's then, what was the, the wording of it? Uh, Not having the book in front of me, I, I cannot remember. Was uh, done. It's uh, incapacitated. Yeah, the, um, yeah, hmm. you make the machine become incapacitated. And I'm like, wow, that literally, I look at the rule in the game, and that literally sounds exactly how that would work in an actual system. And I just think that that's really cool to be able to see that, and how can we make this fit into the 5e system? Oh yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that going on. Like, it's in the new Kickstarter uh, for Nightmare Empire, but I really enjoy how we landed on the Blood Witch class because, like, you know, you've got your Tharn Blood Weavers and your Satixis Blood Witches and everything, and they work in a very particular fashion, right? And looking at the action economy from Fifth Edition, how spell slots work versus how uh, attacks work. I'm actually really happy with where we got to to represent somebody who is able to cast spells because of uh, bloodshed. Uh, it's interesting. It like utilizes the reaction system and the spell slot based on the amount of uh, blood sacrifice. It's just figuring out how to solve those puzzles is a pretty rewarding part of the job. That's really cool. And then it's just like, again, when you're saying design the content, it's like you have the tools in front of you, just how do you make them work? And, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's just, it, it's amazing to see the ingenuity that you come up with. It. I love it. And I, I don't even know if I can take credit for that particular ingenuity because I've got a number of very talented writers that I work with. Well, shout out to all of them, seriously. Like the, 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 the people yeah. that we don't hear or the people that we don't see that work at Private Press. Um, I just, I just had a question, um, kind of just an offshoot. So with, with using the 5e system is like is there like a patent on game systems like do you need to ask you know wizards of the coast hey can i use your tool set you know for my game like like how, how does that work well um we're working within the open game license okay which is something that wizards did to empower third-party creators like ourselves. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. There, there are certain things that are off the table, though. There are certain, like, uh, Mordenkainen's whatever, uh, 
you can't make a reference to that specifically. Mordenkind is their intellectual property. You are not permitted to make use of it, uh, even with the open game license. It's the same thing with like the monsters as well. Like what is it? The the beholder, I think as well. Like you can't use it. Beholder is one of them. Um, I think mind flare is a term that you can't use, and a number of others. But everything that we're working with is within that open game license content. And then what we create adds on to what they've said people can make use of. And honestly, it's really smart because it uh, expands the amount of content available to players of their game. Even if you're not interested in playing an Iron Kingdoms game, for instance, you might pick up the book because you want to play as a pistol-toting ghost. Right, right. And we give you rules for that. Nice. So Matt, when you are not GMing or running a sesh... Uh, what is your favorite general class to play in an RPG? Man, when I'm not GMing? Yes. <laughs> uh, so general class to play in an RPG, I I don't know that it was a conscious choice on my part, but I tend to play a lot of odd clerics. Okay. Here, please tell me battle cleric. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, in a game my wife and I were playing in, uh, I was playing a trickster cleric that was based loosely on Locke Lamora from The Lies of Locke Lamora. I played a cleric named Akram, who was sort of inspired by the origins of Islam, and that was in a Pathfinder game, I think. But I, I do like utility classes, like your, your alchemists, your uh, clerics, but people who have a toolbox of abilities that let them you know, benefit the entire party, not just themselves. Mm-hmm. But I also like playing weird characters. Oh man, you would have yeah, you would have loved our um Strahd game that Paul was running <laughs> a couple months back. <laughs> oh my gosh, he's so dumb. Like the most basic character you can think of, a human fighter. I played in one uh 5e game. He was a battle master fighter, but I decided he would be like 70 something years old <laughs> and recently came out of retirement because he had like a tax lien on his farm. <laughs> so Picked up the old uh, Hoplite spear and shield and went off adventuring again, again because he had like massive debt that he needed nice, to pay off. Nice. That's yep. something I've always liked about like when playing RPGs and people come up with their ideas. Uh, Erica also ran like a 2d6 Iron Kingdoms RPG a while back. And I, a similar story, I played a uh, Iron King Pikeman. He was a retired Iron King and he's like, well, gotta go off and make sure I'm able to stay alive and, you know. What I gotta do. Yeah, I um the the last just just a quick sidebar. So um uh Paul GM'd our our last D and D campaign. I played like this urban druid of the moon. So I was a druid that didn't like the woods, so I lived in the city, so I could only turn into like cockroaches, rats and <laughs> Like cats and dogs, pigeons, that kind of stuff. Nice. Um, so one of our first encounters, oh, we go into this like mansion that has this hunter's den. And in the hunter's den there is a uh, trophy head of an elk. So we finished the combat. I look at Paul across the table. I was like, all right, brother, I have two very important questions for you. He's like, go ahead, send it. I was like, one, do I, uh, do, do I know what an, what an elk looks like based off of like, you know, I, I've seen it. Can I turn into it? He's like, yes. I was like, okay, question two, do I know what the rest of the elk looks like? <laughs> so, I, so I had a table of like 100 animals. Half of them were like utter trash that whenever I turn into this elk, I would have to roll to see what my animal body was from the neck down. That's awesome. That's it was a lot awesome. of fun, actually. <laughs> um, so on the uh, on the subject of classes, which one is your favorite in Iron Kingdoms to play? Uh, Alchemist, hands down. Okay. And that's the utility, more of the utility class you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. And some of it's just 
the very first time I played in the Iron Kingdom setting, it was that adventure Fool's Rush Inn that you referenced earlier. And I played Milo Boggs, the alchemist there. I'm like, man, acid grenades and throwing knives? Sign me up. So I've always had a, a bit of a weakness for alchemists and alchemist-type classes. It's just like, it, it, it's it's... I mean, I know that there's, like, magic associated with them, but I like the idea of an alchemist as well because it's, like, it's more of a science. I'm a science teacher, so I, I really appreciate that and being able to kind of, like, say, like, hmm, I wonder what chemicals you are mixing in order to go and make this gigantic, you know, sticky explosion. So yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, I've always yeah. thought aesthetically the Iron Kingdom's alchemists always look really cool. Like, their art in, in War Machine look, looks great. The Leilies look awesome. I've always really enjoyed the way that aesthetically they look in, in this setting. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of late 19th century look to everything is one of the, the big draws of the setting mm-hmm. in my mind. Like the the leather and brass goggles and cigars, like it helps to pull it out of your, your standard fantasy tropes of, I don't know, uh, Greyhawk, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. instance. Are there going to be more player option modules like the Man of War, Black Clad Druid? Uh, releases will be large character option packages or a one to two archetype drop? So... I think that for the time being, we're going to continue with the one to two archetype drops as sort of the monthly DLC. Whether or not we compile those or after getting some feedback, we uh, incorporate them into a larger physical product with some tweaks kind of remains to be seen. We're still just getting started. I think we're about to release the fourth of those uh, here at the end of this month. And um, with those releases, how do you decide which classes to make? Do you guys um, pull to see what's most popular or do you just try and share the love across all the different factions out there? Uh, it's a little bit of sharing the love across the factions, but it's definitely looking for things that are iconic to the Iron Kingdoms that you can't just play with a standard 5e class, right? Like I. I love the exemplars, for instance, but you can pretty much already play an exemplar. It's just you've got your exemplar sword and you've got your armor, whereas something like a Stormsmith is unique to the Iron Kingdoms and not something that you can easily mm-hmm. replicate elsewise. No, that's actually really cool. And then what about playtesting for these? Like, Because you think you said earlier that you, when you do these, you have playtesters to make sure that it reads well, it plays well and everything. Like, What is the playtesting involved with that? When it comes to the smaller content releases, uh, because we have larger projects that our playtesters are, you know, we want them to focus on, like Nightmare Empire, typically it's uh, handled internally for the smaller DLCs with myself, Lauren, uh, Eric, Jason, sometimes when he has time to look at it, and also with the uh, the writer's room, which are those, those unsung heroes that you see in the credits that I, I have a Discord and we... Even when we're not actively producing something, we're just in there chatting. Gotcha. And then Dan asked this, so shout out to him. Um, uh, he he brought up the three pillars of RPG, um, and when you do these design processes, and I believe the three pillars are combat, role play, and adventuring. I believe. Do you try to hit all three of those pillars whenever you come up with one of these character options? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's there's something really fascinating that is sort of it, it's not talked about in anywhere really but when you look at like a subclass there's typically a structure to the kinds of features the subclass gets at different levels Uh, for instance with the rogue its subclasses typically have two options at the time you take it uh, at third level that are combat oriented and then there will be something that's utility oriented and utility typically hits the uh 
the exploration pillar of role playing. And there are some classes that are a little bit more skewed toward like combat and exploration or combat and role play. So you'll look kind of at the base class, see what role it's filling in uh, a party. And that'll kind of help you to determine whether or not you're going to be giving them exploration utility abilities or role-playing utility features. Like with your rogues, it's going to be a lot of exploration, picking locks and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas when you have something like a paladin or the black lab class, they're oftentimes going to be the face of a group. So you want to look at more uh, role-playing oriented features to help reinforce that role. Gotcha. And then the last couple of questions that we had here, these were actually from like our community members, so you know, we were happy that they had it. Um, one of our players was asking about the 3.0 Mechanica guide. Is there any plans to do an updated version of that so that people can make their own cool Mechanica armor and weapons? So the Libra Mechanica, um, it's not something that we have immediately on the horizon, uh, but we, we are rolling out more Mechanica options with everything that we dropped. Like we had the uh, Mechanica in Arcanica in Borderlands and Beyond. We've got Necrotech in Nightmare Empire. And there have been thoughts I've had about doing like a, a Crucibilis, Crucibilis Synthetatus, which is like the in-setting book of alchemy. That's cool. uh, it was a dissertation on alchemy or doing something like the Libra Mechanica or even the Libra Mechanicrus, the the evil version of a Libra Mechanica that is responsible for what, like the Seether and Death Jack and everything. Uh, so it's something that we're considering, but not on any kind of timeline. That's cool. All right. So, uh, Matt, I have to preface this. So my husband, Andy, you know, he's pretty stoic. Not not too many things in media make him get the feels. I think like leaves on the vine, right? That gets everybody. Um, <laughs> so uh, the novel Godless uh, by Oren Gray is classified as fire and faith. Andy loves this book. And this uh, this question also comes from two of our community members, Chris and Jason. Um, so since we have a part one, does that mean we're going to get a part two at some point? So. One of the things that we've been doing with the role-playing game, which is like, uh, not as I'm not the publications director, I'm the RPG development manager, I can speak to the role-playing game side of things. Ah. Um, we've been using the RPGs, uh, particularly the adventures, as a tool to tell some of the stories that people have been asking us about and doing so in a way where instead of being a passive participant in the story, you're an active participant. So like with the big changes in iOS, that is something that we at one point might've done as a novella or a novel, but we have shadow of the seeker where your boots on the ground and experiencing all of those events and changes first person, right? Whether or not we have the opportunity to go back to doing print fiction like that, I can't really say, uh, kind of outside my wheelhouse. But I do know that if we were to do anything involving Zoo, I would want the opportunity to get players in interacting with the, the new Ichthyr colony and interacting with Tristan's trials and what it's yeah, like. Yeah, well, if you, if you tell your friends back at Privateer Press, I think like, one of the last books I read was a, a Kador Butcher book. Uh, that was a fun read. I killed it in like a day and a half. So it's definitely, yeah. definitely a market for it. it. I, <laughs> I will say Oren Gray uh, wrote Godless, and he has been a participant in every single one of the 5th edition books that we put out. 
Oh. Every single one. He actually just posted a big old blog post about Nightmare Empire today. Huh. If you go find him. Perfect. Fabulous. Yeah, I'm going to check that out after this. And then, Matt, here's the last one is that the D23.0 system, I go back to that because I remember there were so many other books out there because the, you were talking about the open game license. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's this one called Dragon Mech. You were literally able to, like, have Gundams and D&D. I don't know why it was a thing. It was a thing. Because the game said you could have them, Paul. <laughs> but I guess the, the question here is, how have you found that Iron, IK RPG has been able to stand out from all the other systems that are out there, the other 5e systems that people have already created? So one of the things about it is definitely aesthetic, right? Like, there are steampunk uh, editions of both first and third party, but IK isn't really steampunk. Like, yes, it has steam power and has big big metal robots that we talked about before, <laughs> but it's, it's got its own kind of unique aesthetic, the, the full metal fantasy aesthetic. Um, so that's definitely a part of it. And also, like, the, the mechanical side of things, we have 20-plus years of thought and innovation and, like, world concepts that we can go back to when we're developing things that have already been so well-defined by previous writers, by previous developers, that we have uh, a wealth to build on top of. And I think a lot of that does show through when it comes to comparing the Iron Kingdoms to a different uh, a different similar setting. And I was over on the, uh, the fan Discord a few days ago when somebody had basically a, how do I sell this to my players? How do I sell this world to my players? And it was fascinating to see the number of people that jumped in and were talking about how, while on a superficial level, it may remind you of these other things that exist out there. It has its own identity. It's got its own feeling with things like the Mechanica and the unique uh, ancestries and cultures. And it was like a, a warm, fuzzy feel that I got seeing people talking about what made them like the the setting in the system and that's something that i like like uh here as well because we found like our war machine uh community has been growing because you know people come up and say hey you know what things are you excited about with playing this game and we only have nothing but excitement and happiness and just a good vibe whenever we go ahead and talk about this game and it's it's nice to see that all the other products that pp has been coming up with it's it's similar it's great those are those are great people to have yeah, and I think I think it's important too um, to and we kind of hit on this in earlier podcast episodes is promoting that positivity because it's so easy to kind of you know rip on something or be negative just to you know for whatever reason. But no, it, it's cool. I I definitely feel there's a more um, positive aura about this game as a whole within the past you know couple years. So it's been it's been good. It's been a good time. Yeah, and like I. I'm honestly really impressed by some of the fan creations and stuff on the the Discord. You know, people who are seeing areas that they want explored right away aren't waiting. They're they're getting in and they're they're doing it. And that's one of the real beauties of role playing games as uh, as a game is the tools that the developers create are basically teaching every game master out there how to be a developer of a role And that, game. that's got to be right. the biggest compliment for you and your team, right? I mean, it's huge. Oh, yeah. Seeing people take take these things and spend their own time and their own creative effort and energy to to make something in the world, in the setting, even if it's something of their their entire own invention, I would I love to see it. 
That's great. Well, Matt, this is getting us to the end of the episode. We want to just take a moment to thank you to coming up on the podcast, being able to share the awesome stuff. Again, congratulations on your Nightmare Empire Kickstarter. Just, again, 40 minutes and it got funded. It was beyond me. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, did you have any remarks that you want to say before we go ahead and end this? Um, support your local creators. No, um, <laughs> it's it's always a joy to be able to talk about the, the games and things that I love. You know, so you you don't need to thank me for coming on. Thank you for having me and giving me another chance to nerd out about role playing games. And you know, if you ever catch me at a convention, you or any of the listeners to the podcast, and you want to tell me about your character, please feel free to do you so. Plan on going to Nova or Pax Unplugged? Oh, Matt, come on out. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> My, it's a good come time. On, come, hang, yeah. come, hang, come on, hang. come hang out in Philly, DC, East Coast. Oh, Philly, Philly. Uh, I've heard things about your sandwiches. <laughs> oh yeah, there. <laughs> it's a good time. It's uh, we did Pax last year, and yeah, it was it was a really it was a really great time. The uh, that warehouse venue thing is so huge, and um, yeah, it, it was a, it's a great time. It, it would definitely be a difference from most of the convention spaces I go to, which are in like Missouri and Indiana. So. Oh yeah. Not not that there's anything wrong with Missouri or Indiana, I, but, but we have some in here on the East Coast that you'll like. It's fine. Yeah. Like I'm from the Northwest, so I don't do well with like muggy heat. Oh, you and me both. And that's something Indiana has in spades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to say, Matt. You know, on behalf of Tried and True and Delaware War Machine community, um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and answering our questions and giving us a lot of great information. I actually have the new Iron Kingdoms book on order along with the Witchfire. I have my originals. I'm looking at my three books right now. Uh, so nice. um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, looking at those books and running my own game in the next couple of months. So well, thank, yeah. thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure to hear. Uh, yeah, Matt, thank you again for coming on here. It's been great. And with that, that is going to go and conclude this episode. Hey, on the next episode, we're going to go ahead and continue to hang out with people from Privateer Press. We're looking forward to going ahead and talk, asking questions, and seeing what's coming down in the future. So from all of us from Try and True, thank you so much for joining us. Catch you later. Bye. Take it easy.